and a warm welcome to South Asia Chat. I'm your host, Dr. Imran Ahmed, a visiting research fellow at the Institute of South Asian Studies here at the National University of Singapore. As the Taliban advance continues, things in Afghanistan look more and more worrying and uncertain. Here to help us make some sense of recent developments and unpack some of the Taliban's ideological thinking and tactical and strategic calculations is Dr. Harun Rahmi, an assistant professor of law at the American University of Afghanistan. Dr. Harun, welcome. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to begin. Uh, what are the prospects for the return of the Taliban and what, and what do you think it means for um, Afghan politics and society? That is a very hard question to answer, um, as I know you can appreciate. Um, right now, it seems like uh, the path for political settlement um, is um, narrowing down. Um, there was much more hope uh, before uh, President Biden unilaterally announced the uh, unconditional withdrawal of all US troops. Um, the consensus was that that decision removed the, any incentive Taliban may have had to uh, seriously pursue negotiation with the Afghan government as a way of achieving their primary objective, which was the removal of uh, foreign troops from Afghanistan. Since then, there hasn't been much traction uh, in the peace negotiations between two sides. Uh, most recently, there was a high-level meeting um, in Doha, which failed to produce any meaningful results. The parties issued um, a joint statement um, that focused on civilian uh, uh, casualties, protection of infrastructures, and COVID. Uh, but beyond that, there's been no meaningful progress. The Afghan government team, after re the return from that high-level meeting, all expressed to media their um, their frustration that the Taliban are not serious about making a, a political settlement. That's what's going on with kind of the peace process. Militarily, uh, the fighting has been intensified uh, uh, since the the uh, the announcement of uh, uh, troop withdrawal and uh, at the same time kind of breakdown in the uh, negotiation process. Um, Taliban have been gaining ground, as you said in the beginning. Um, they mostly, they control a large portion of rural Afghanistan. Uh, the estimates range from one third of Afghan district. Afghanistan has like near 365 district. The, the estimates range from one third to, uh, uh, to half of Afghanistan district. The cities have so far held, uh, are held by the government, but the cities are mostly in, uh, cut off because Taliban control most of the, uh, routes and roads that connect the cities, as well as many crossing points. Uh, as you know, Afghanistan is a landlocked country. It relies uh, on uh, uh, land, uh, on land transportations of everything that the people produce, uh, consume and need, as well as uh, any type of uh, uh, military supply that may come from outside. And Taliban control many important uh, border crossing. So, the Afghan government is under siege for sure, um, and the Taliban have uh, uh, had a military momentum. The consensus of experts is that um, the Afghan government must deny Taliban a military victory 
and underground parties must achieve some sort of military stalemate uh, uh, before the peace process can make meaningful uh, progress. I think you make a really interesting point. I think just this morning I saw an article that the Afghan uh, Taliban um, have begun collecting taxes at uh, uh, Spin Baldock um, crossing. Um, so can I uh, take a step back to how we got uh, to where we are today? And I wanted to ask you uh, perhaps a more historical um, question. Um, what were some of the most fundamental or enduring challenges facing the democratization process in Afghanistan? And what role do you think the 2004 constitution played in exacerbating or mitigating these obstacles? That's a very good um, um, kind of, I think, frame of thinking about where we are, at least uh, with regard to the, uh, the dichotomy that often articulated between a democratic camp and the, the, um, the Taliban camp of whose uh, ideologies often framed as um, traditional um, Islamist or by some as fundamentalist. Afghanistan has been on uh, this path of democratization uh, for a long time. Uh, the initial impetus go back to the beginning of uh, the beginning of 20th century, uh, with Amanullah Khan and a group of Afghan intellectuals around him, like Therzi, who was who were writing about uh, um, ideas of, of democracy, self-representation, and, and and such. Obviously, in a very limited manner, um, but the ideas go back to that time. There was a historical process where the uh, traditional um, uh, power holders in Afghanistan, which tended to be land owner, uh, uh, Pashtun tribal elites, uh, uh, who had an alliance uh, with the um, conservative forces in, in the society, including the religious scholars, ulama class. Um, that class resisted very much all the attempts for, by, by the central government to modernize the country, which often meant creating a nation state in modern, uh, Form, which included, for example, representation, uh, uh, having a parliament, making law through parliament, and often having limited form of elections as well. That struggle uh, um, kind of culminated in uh, the 1964 constitution of Afghanistan, which is by many called uh, that, that decade that was ushered in by that constitution by many is called the decade of democracy in Afghanistan. Afghanistan came to have a, a constitutional monarchy, a, a parliament which was very active and strong. And in that context, the idea was that uh, the uh, intellectual forces of modernizers had won over because the constitution clearly stated, for example, that a state law would prevail over the provisions of fiqh as long as it did not contradict the basic principles of Islam um, uh, and the gap and the fiqh the Hanafi fiqh, which is the fiqh that is most relevant in the context of Afghanistan, is a school of thought that is uh, a religious uh, jurisprudential uh, thought that is most relevant in the context of Afghanistan would be the gap filler. But after 19, that decade that was uh, ended in 1974 or five with a coup, um, Afghanistan kind of got off to a different path. There was there was left leaning uh, revolutions that kind of usher that kind of broke down that negotiated settlement between a historical negotiated settlement between the uh, ulama class 
um, uh, and intellectuals. And in that kind of context, uh, kind of Islamist politics grew um, first in universities and then in the parties that were fighting the communist regime and later on the Soviet uh, uh, invasion of Afghanistan. And the impetus for Islamist politics, which was for the most part uh, um, compatible with the idea of elections and elected government, but um, also insisted on transforming the society uh, into a vision of Islamic society, which often involved the state taking a much more active role on enforcing the val Islamic values, Islamic laws, was born. It was never put into a form of state because the Mujahideen never really managed to have a stable um, state. They drafted many constitutions that reflected their Islamist leaning, but it was never adopted. Those constitutions were never adopted. And they're failing actually. I mean, the, the failing of Islamist politics by those um, uh, parties and their infighting created an opportunity for the uh, Taliban to, to be born. Um, the Taliban often uh, are thought of as um, religious students. Talib literally means students who turned fighters uh, uh, because they were dissatisfied with the situation they were seeing around them. There was chaos and infighting. Um, they also came from the South, which was not um, strongly represented by any of the uh, Mujahideen political parties uh, during the infighting. Uh, and they were pretty much, the, the South was dissatisfied with the situation and they allied, uh, aligned themselves with, the, with the, this movement, this religious students movement. There is, if not, if not in the beginning, but later on, there was uh, a lot of support from Pakistan as well. Um, the Pakistan at the time was supporting other Islamist parties, but they changed to Taliban. What made Taliban different from other Islamist Mujahideen parties that were fighting for the power in Kabul at, uh, over the Kabul at the time was that they are very traditionalist. So they wanted also to use the state to transform the society in the vision of a Muslim society, but they rejected any form of modern ideas of the state and politics. For example, they had they ultra rejected, rejected elections. They opted for a narrow understanding of Islam, which they understood that, uh, understood within the context of classical uh, uh, Islamic Hanafi orthodoxy. So to them, Islam meant and uh, what, uh, whatever the classical uh, Hanafi text would say is Islamic. And therefore they rejected many modern ideas that were commonly accepted by, by many Muslim uh, parties and Muslim countries, issues like elections and such. Um, so you have this interesting kind of unique feature to Taliban. They are modern in a sense that they want to instrumentalize the state, the modern state to transform the society, but they're also traditionalist in that they understand the uh, Islam and what counts as Islamic exclusively and uncritically um, based on a, a narrow selected text, classical text of Hanafi fiqh that creates a situation we see today, which is kind of a brand of uncompromising and very harsh um, uh, forms of Islamist politics, which seeks to pretty much remove the distinction between uh, fiqh, which is kind of the norms about how a Muslim should live their lives and a state law, which is what rules can state enforce true violence. So that distinction for the Taliban does not exist. And they are bent upon using 
all the tools of state, all the forms of violence that is available to the state in order to uh, enforce the entire corpus of cl classical fiqh, uh, which as you can imagine that would result in a totalitarian state that con considers all aspects of human existence a valid uh, uh, a space for a state intervention. That's why you hear talks about how Taliban enforcing like the rules about the length of beard or how often you need to pray or where you need to pray. I mean, things as little as, as just beard come under the kind of purview of state if you remove that distinction, if you do not allow for any modern understanding that would create a separation between uh, a state as a modern concept that uses violence uh, um, and, and, and force um, in order to achieve certain goals versus classical fiqh, which was mostly meant to be general guidelines about how Muslims should live their life. Can I ask also, um, I think you touched on something really interesting there. What, what do the Taliban think of the 2004 constitution? Was there anything um, particularly Islamic about that constitution? The 2004 constitution kind of went back to the 1964 situation. I mean, even after the, so after the US invaded Afghanistan and toppled the government of Taliban, the government that tried to explain like how it operated, um, there was a conference held in Germany and they agreed that the 1964 constitution, which was the last constitution with the broad legitimacy in Afghanistan, that the Taliban actually respected, uh, 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 at least in the rhetoric, uh, uh, respect currently in the rhetoric. Uh, they, to a certain extent, very limited extent, uh, but there, there is some respect for the Afghanistan history in the Taliban rhetoric. I don't want to over stress that. But the 96, they went back to the 1964 uh, um, constitution as the interim constitution. And there was the idea that there would be a, a process, an inclusive process that would lead to drafting a new constitution uh, and adopting it inside Afghanistan. That process was completed in 2004. And the result is the 2004 constitution. That process excluded the Taliban as Party that lost the civil war, basically. The US came down on the side of Northern Alliance um, um, in the Afghanistan civil war as a way to topple Taliban. So Taliban were not included, meaning that their views on law, state, politics, and society was never, there was no need to consider it and discuss it. And the 2004 constitution, for the most part, kind of sidesteps the Taliban understanding of the state society relationship and uh, uh, understanding of the relationship between law and society. The other Islamist politics, uh, like the, uh, the type of uh, politics that would be akin to the Islam-Muslim Brotherhood, which were represented in Afghanistan by uh, Mujahideen parties before the Taliban or during the time of Taliban, they were fighting with them. Um, that also was sidestepped because of the fact that the Taliban represented this um, worst recarnation of Islamist politics. And there was kind of an apathy on the side of the populace even to, kind of, to go back to uh, that kind of uh, 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 politics. So it went back to the, to the 2004 constitution, went back to that kind of historical um, um, har harmony or, or negotiated settlement between the relationship of law, state, and, uh, and uh, uh, Islam, which basically said the state would run the state within a basic set of principles and boundaries that uh, would be fundamental to any understanding of Islam. The laws would be made by, a legisl by, the, by an elected legislator as long as those laws do not contradict the basic principles of Islam, those laws will be enforceable by the state. And um, 
the Islamic fiqh jurisprudence would be used as a gap filler if a state law is not uh, um, uh, is not sufficient to resolve a case before a court. Um, and that kind of goes back to that understanding that was achieved between uh, Afghan intellectuals and traditional uh, 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 class of Islam, Islamic uh, scholars in Afghanistan. And it show it is Islamic, I think it is. Uh, uh, it has a lot of Islamist kind of principles in it. Uh, as I said, there is a, a repugnancy clause that pre prevents any law uh, that uh, the Supreme Court of Afghanistan considers to be against uh, uh, principles of Islam to be adopted as legislation. Um, still, many of the uh, uh, laws of the countries uh, were adopted based on consultation of uh, uh, Islamic principles. Um, the issues of Hulud al-Qasas, for example, in the Afghanistan's state law are referred to directly to the Hanafi fiqh. Um, so there is a lot of fiqh and Islam influencing the legal system and the constitution, but there is still a separation maintained, uh, which makes it quite different than the Taliban version that does not see any distinction between the corpus of classical Hanafi fiqh, which should be understood in terms of instructions about how a Muslim should live their lives and a state law. Thank you so much for that. That was really illuminating. I before I just wanted to ask one more side question, if that's okay, on the democratization process. You mentioned um, mujahideen parties. Um, when I when we think of um, issues of uh, elections and representation in the Afghan uh, political process. We often tend to think of it in terms of ethnicity rather than political parties. Is that something that's played a role in um, the, the issues pertaining to democratization in Afghanistan? I mean, Afghanistan, um, it kind of depends on which period of history you're talking about, but ethnicity has always played a major issue in uh, Afghan polity. Um, the Mujahideen political parties uh, they had uh, many of, they, they could be categorized based, based on their ideological leanings. Some of them were nationalists, some of them were Islamists, uh, but they also had, a, each political party was strongly associated with an ethnic group as well. Um, they, uh, for example, their fighters would be recruited from a certain regions of the country, a certain ethnic group. For example, the Jamiat, which is, was the, the, one of the leading political parties during the Jihad, which is still influential in Afghanistan, was primarily seen as being a Tajik, um, uh, being a political party that has uh, followers and recruits from the Tajik population of Afghanistan, the, the, the Tajik ethnic group. Uh, has the Islami, which was the other leading party, was seen as representing the Pashtuns, although the Pashtuns of the south of Afghanistan, where the Taliban uh, had their original Kind of support in the beginning were not strongly affiliated with the Hizb Islami. It was the Pashtuns of other sides of Afghanistan, the the the, the uh, east and, and the north side of Afghanistan were more strongly associated with the Hizb uh, uh, Islami. There were also political parties uh, that were basically seen in their Uzbek character, uh, the Jumbish, which was a political party that was headed by uh, Marshal Dostum, which is still relevant, and the, his party is still relevant. One thing uh, in terms of political party, because you mentioned on it, is that because of the history of civil war uh, and how these political parties uh, fought each other over power after the collapse of the Soviet regime, uh, the Soviet-backed regime in Afghanistan, 
Afghans often have a very low opinion of political parties, and they often associate political party with infighting and civil war. As a result, post 2004, really no political party, the political party was not very, first of all, it was not recognized in the constitution as having, for example, a major role in elections or, 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 or explicitly being given any electoral kind of role. The constitution recognizes the creation of political party, but election law uh, based on the constitution do not provide any role for uh, political parties in the election process. And the, generally the presidents, uh, uh, both President Ghani and President Karzai, strongly discouraged the party-based politics, neither of them for political party, neither of them strongly associated themselves with, the, with any political party. And the populace generally also um, is, has, does not have a very positive opinion of political party. That contributed to the failure of democratization. As you know, it's very hard to have um, uh, a, a democracy, have especially an active parliament without strong political parties. Another point I would like to make about the issues of election democratization is that with regard to Taliban in particular, is that the Mujahideen, as I said, political parties uh, during the, the war against the Soviet Union and then the, the pre brief period of time where they tried to form a state uh, unsuccessfully, uh, they did not, did not deny elections. They actually accepted election in the draft constitution they, 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 they created. Uh, partly because they were uh, they were not a unitary movement. It was a coalition of different forces and they needed elections to sort out the, the question of leadership. Also ideologically, as I said, they were more welcoming of modern developments. They did not see anything contradictory with the modern uh, developments on issues of uh, state institutions with uh, their Islamist kind of pronounced Islamist kind of leanings. Um, they were following the paths of modern Islamists uh, in, for example, in Pakistan, people like Maududi in, in, in uh, Iran, like a revolutionary uh, uh, republic, uh, and for example, in, in Egypt, the Islamic Brotherhood. They, they were kind of trying to use the modern state as a way to implement values of Islam. Taliban, on the other hand, uh, completely rejected the elections, partly because they were unitary force, they did not really have a need for election. Um, actually, it would have been counterproductive for them because the um, Taliban have been historically like a network. They have been very decentralized in their operation. There were just commanders who had close links with their fighters, but those commanders were kind of tied together in a network kind of uh, structure. And their supreme leader uh, or the uh, Amir al-Mu'mineen, uh, uh, Mullah Omar, or, uh, when he was alive, he was the kind of the super commander who had, to whom a religious duty was owed, uh, to whom uh, obedience was owed as a religious duty. So it was a way to keep this network together, to keep the cohesion of the system, uh, very much stress the obedience to one person. And that person was kind of the glue that was supposed to hold this network together. And that person was the power of that person, uh, although it was not de facto power, uh, other than controlling the, the resources and, 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 and money, uh, which became which had different importance, different times, because some of the time, many of the networks were self-sufficient, they would raise money from the population and such. But sometimes when the money was coming from outside, the, the, the head of the movement became more important. Other than that, they did not have a lot of de facto power. Mullah was never a major commander. He did not really uh, have a lot of de facto power. His power was de jure, and it was not based on laws. It came from this idea of obedience to the Amir, to the, to the leader. So they kind of had a very strong sense of kind of no, political norm of obedience to the Amir as a way of keeping the cohesion of the movement. Election would actually, 
undermine that. And th we saw when Mullah Omar passed, like the, his death became public, there was fighting over his succession. And ever since the movement, uh, I mean, the position of Amir has weakened. And at the same time, the movement um, has tried to maintain its cohesion uh, uh, in different ways. Often there is uh, there are different shuras and the, the, the division of power, not uh, uh, in modern sense, but there is some division of powers um, as a way of maintaining cohesion and, 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 and decision-making through consensus. So they, they did not have practical, um, Taliban has never had practical need for elections. And actually the election would have been historically unproductive uh, for, for the uh, political cohesion. Um, another issue was, as I said, the ideology that they rejected anything that did not have precedent in classical Islamic orthodoxy. And the argument has been, and so far is that elections do not have and democratic politics did not have a precedent in uh, Islamic orthodoxy. And therefore they see that as an evidence of rejection, although that would be an inaccurate way to understand it, but that's their understanding. The other issue with regard to elections and post 2001 was that they, before 2001, they were not, Taliban were not really fighting any other liberal democratic forces. I mean, other political parties with other factions and parties that they were fighting with the Mujahideens were also overtly Islamist, and they really not did not have a liberal idea of democratic uh, democracy in mind. They had they were in, they were they did not reject elections, but they wanted the state to actually transform the society, enforce the rules of Islam. For example, hij mandatory hijab enforced by the state was the idea of the Mujahideen as well. Having separated schools for girls and, and, and boys was the same thing. The infamous and this kind of goes back to the Mujahideen period the infamous institution of Amr Ma'roof and Nayaz Munkar, which is kind of the a public police for morality, uh, goes back to the Mujahideen government. So the Taliban were not fighting a liberal democratic forces in before 2001. But after 2001, because of the, uh, this vision of a liberal democratic society that was uh, created in the 2004 constitution, again, going back to, to historical roots of those kind of movements in Afghanistan. So it was not an innovation, but it was a return back to a, a, a past periodic history, a period in history. Taliban kind of positions against democracy and liberal values and educations, uh, sorry, liberal values and elections actually hardened because they were justifying their insurgency against, uh, normatively at least, against a, a, a liberal democracy. And so that kind of their, their, the impetus was there, but it was much more hardened, becomes much, much more pronounced in their fighting against the 2004 uh, post-2004 order. Uh, and finally, some would argue that the Taliban version would never be popular in Afghanistan enough for them to actually win a, 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 in an open election. Um, so it makes sense for them to uh, pose an elite form of governance, a kind of proposed elite form of governance, which would give them an outsized influence over politics, the influence would, that would not enjoy in an, an open democratic process. For example, there was a survey of people of Afghanistan done by the Asia Foundation, which is a careful representative survey. Um, it has its limitations, but it still is the best survey we've got. And in that survey, 84% of the respondents stated that they had no sympathy for the Taliban. It tells you that they're not very popular with the population for obvious reasons that are fighting. The fighting causes a lot of issues. And also they are very harsh in terms of uh, their approach to law, order, and, and such. So they're not very popular with the population. Um, so therefore, they, they have practical reasons to actually resist any form of 
open democratic order, uh, because that would mean um, they would be still influential, I think, in Afghan politics, because there are a lot of people who do support them, but they would lose a lot of support. And then elite form of governance, the governments where elite uh, have much more control would actually be more favorable to the Taliban uh, political future. If I, if I could move uh, across the political field here in Afghanistan and, and uh, focus some attention uh, on the Republic side of things, is there, is there a crisis of leadership? Um, what sort of issues has Ashraf Ghani's presidency produced in dealing with the Taliban and uh, has he been able to build or facilitate unity um, against the Taliban? Um, and I, um, I apologize for the long-winded question. Um, I also wanted to understand um, how Ashraf Ghani's presidency has managed um, some of the fractious elements of uh, Afghan politics, such as regional tensions, strong men, and warlords. Those are all great questions, and I think I it would be interesting um, to kind of use, um, to make a segue from what I said before to the line of questions you're asking. I said Taliban are not very popular with the populace. Um, if you believe the surveys that was conducted, uh, the surveys that were conducted. But the reality is that the, after the, uh, even before the US troop withdrawal, the Afghan government was losing ground to Taliban. They were controlling a large part of the country, not the population necessarily, but the country. And now after the announcement of uh, foreign troop withdrawal, the, um, they control a large part of the population as well. Their territorial gain has expanded and also their control over population. And it begs the question of how they were able to achieve this. Um, their military capacity did not, um, obviously, uh, uh, if you, Think of in terms of number of soldiers, and if you think of in terms of resources, even uh, if one considers their external supports, would not be a match for the um, government side, for the republic side. Uh, so, kind of, it, it creates this puzzle of what happened, uh, uh, what explains this uh, surge in Taliban power and uh, the the lose of ground and control by the government. And many have pointed out to the political failures of the two thousand post-2001 order to explain this. And I happen to agree with that. There is, first of all, corruption, rampant corruption uh, in both administrations that followed the 2001 order. President Karzai and President Ghani's regime have been rife with corruption uh, of many, many forms um, to the core of the system, which created a lot of dissatisfaction on the side of population. So maybe people would not uh, support Taliban, but they are also very critical of the governments and because of the rampant corruption. There was also this kind of tension from the beginning, the tension that the, both the United States and any person in charge of the Afghan government had to deal with. It was a tension between the need for a state building and maintaining uh, order control over the population and the country. A population in a country that were de facto controlled by warlords. Um, so the, the trade-off was that if you want to monopolize the, um, the violence in the hands of the state, like create an, an orderly system, if you want to cut down corruption, and uh, if you want to st strengthen the state and institutions, you have to face resistance from the warlords who actually de facto control, um, control borders, population, and territory, and were the real like, military force that existed in the country 
after the US invasion, they were pretty much the state in the, their areas. They had their own fiefdoms. And the trade-off was that whenever you push to fight corruption or limit the power of warlords, you would uh, it would create, uh, it would weaken the government positions against uh, insurgency, or it would just breed to, would lead to direct kind of uh, 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 challenging of the state power, which happened over many times in Afghanistan history. More recent examples happened in the northern Afghanistan, uh, where Dostum refused, Dostum forces refused to recognize a, a governor that was appointed by the central government, and the government had to back down. But that's kind of a, just one recent example over a series of, of, of incidents uh, that happened over the past 20 years. So, um, and the many, the President Karzai, uh, the previous administration, kind of made the, uh, the trade-off in favor of keeping the warlords happy. And as a result, the government was pretty much, uh, uh, you, can, you could think of it as a, as a collective, um, um, uh, as a, he was kind of the, the chief um, um, among, um, among many who enjoyed similar power to the state, all of them um, deep, uh, involved, deeply involved in corruption. Uh, President Ghani um, kind of rejected that big tent policy and he tried to um, uh, uh, cut down uh, the power of warlords. He famously has tried to target their bases of income uh, uh, that often came from uh, custom revenue or government appointments. Um, that, however, led to the uh, lack of um, state support in many areas of the country. So it came at the cost of losing territory because those uh, influential figures kind of shift their, uh, their positions in favor of Taliban or just against the state, creating an opportunity for Taliban to seize on those um, uh, kind of back that vacuum that was created, but at the same time, it could not deliver the President Ghani's reforms, kind of state building reforms, did not deliver in a sense that it did not improve service delivery fast enough, and they did not cut down on corruption. They shifted corruption, so the population did not be, did not favor the government either. So the, the reforms alienated the warlords, but they failed to win over the population as well. So it created a situation where the population actually aligned themselves with their local influential figures and warlords against the government. So you had an insurgency where I was rising and then you had a state that was had alienated, alienated the regional kind of power holders and the population that was more aligned with the warlords and uh, regional power holders than the government uh, because um, often the state measures were seen in ethnic lines, like it was seen attacks against warlords seen uh, as an um, kind of attack against the mi uh, minority and attempt to disfranchise a, 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 an ethnic group in Afghanistan. And at the same time, as I said, the, the government, the President Ghani's reform did not fail to actually produce results for the people. So the economy did not became worse, uh, the poverty rate went up, corruption actually did not improve much, it shifted. Um, there were different kinds of acts that were involved in the corruption now, but the corruption in terms of what the people experienced did not change much. Um, there were gains, but very limited, and service delivery did not improve. So it, in that environment, uh, an insurgency could easily take over territory, and it had, was going on way before the, the U.S. troops withdrawal. And um, when the U.S. troops withdrew, then the Taliban already controlled a large, they were well positioned to actually expand the territorial gain, but they already controlled a large part of the uh, portion of the countryside, partly because of the, because of the factors I tried to explain. 
I wanted to, uh, you made an interesting point earlier about, um, you spoke about the leadership tr struggle uh, after the death of Mullah Omar. Uh, I wanted to ask is, um, how do we understand the Taliban's current leadership structure? Um, is the Taliban as united as uh, Western commentaries often seem to suggest? Um, and uh, how, how has that leadership evolved since, the, since Mullah Omar's death? Is there factions within the Taliban willing to come to a political or constitutional solution to the present conflict? So as I said before, I mean, first of all, this is an area that everyone is pretty much speculating. Um, the Taliban as a group are very secretive about their internal processes um, as well uh, as that they are very, I mean, they have transformed over time. So, I mean, it, you will be, everyone can talk about Taliban at a specific period of time, but it's very hard to, to talk about them um, in, in an ahistorical and kind of atemporal way. Um, but generally, one sort of set of themes that are common uh, um, and we should pay attention to when we think of the, the way Taliban actually operate um, is that, as I said, they have a strong emphasis on obedience to the leader. And I believe that is because they are trying to counter the de facto reality of their decentralized and um, uh, non-hierarchical kind of uh, uh, way of operation, which gave them the advantage um, in, their, in their fight with the government. They're basically, they have cells and groups and networks that are operating semi-independently. Uh, and what kind of glues everything together is this very strong emphasis on obedience to the ruler, uh, obedience to the emir, to the person um, who is the, seen as the Olal Arm, the commander in chief, uh, and, and, and the, the lead uh, of the movement. When the Mullah Omar was alive, that that was much more, that, that kind of argument had much more force because of this the, uh, character of the Mullah Omar as the founding figure of the movement. After his death, it became much more complicated. Uh, but even before Mullah Omar passed, the group had taken measures to consolidate its control over its fighters. For example, for a very long time, the group was organized through Mahaz, which meant that it was just a commander um, that acted as nods in the uh, in the uh, Taliban kind of uh, movement, and th there could be multiple commanders in the same region or in the same district. Um, so you could have ten uh, Taliban commander uh, fighters in one uh, uh, district, and they would be connected to different mahals, to different kind of uh, uh, military uh, commanders, and they would be operating in the same district, increasing the chance that they would be fighting each other and they would be uh, infighting and such. They transformed that to a system uh, that happened in 2008-9 and the first version attempt of it. It transformed that in a system that kind of mirrored the Afghanistan's administrative distribution where there is a district governor, a Taliban district governor, and there is a Taliban a provincial governor. Um, and the fighters would be fighting over that umbrella militarily. Um, the kind of a, a district commander, uh, 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 provincial commander. There is a side, an administrative side to it. There are a number of commissions that are supposed to do um, administrative and like non-military work, like there are commissions on culture, revenue, and such. But the distribution was that, okay, in district, there will be a, a central command um, and a, a central com commander, and it would have a civil counterpart and would go to the province. And they kind of try to dismantle that Mahaz system uh, of commander-based uh, where, where there was a lot of chance for infighting because the same fighters uh, of different commanders could uh, be co-active in the same region. They tried to do that and the, they tried to also expand control 
um, over their uh, fighters uh, by controlling the appointments of those commanders through the the a number of shuras and councils that were established in in Pakistan, the Kuwait Shura. Um, it was uh, to an extent successful, and not perfectly, but it was it was successful to in terms of creating some sort of hierarchy and 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 and, and cohesion. Um, there are still a fragmentation inside the movement. For example, there was a Peshawar Shura that was created. A Peshawar Shura was seen as this young um, uh, Taliban fighters who actually uh, came, uh, kind of became to prominence after uh, the 2001. So you can think of old timer uh, Taliban who made up the Kuwait Shura or, and the newcomers who made up the Peshawar Shura and the kind of the uh, uh, power often, uh, the, the, the power shift uh, happened to the Peshawar Shura, and the Peshawar Shura had much closer links with the um, ISI and and, and 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 the Pakistan movement. So that kind of old timers, new timers, and the dynamic exists there. So that's one kind of grouping. There are also um, local Taliban's who are not really have don't have strong links to the Shuras, the uh, kind of the, the leadership. They are local. They don't operate beyond the area of the way they exist. And they often are not very professional. They don't, uh, the area they live, they're not very professional. They're not very active and strong. And they have much more respect for local norms and customs. They have much more emphasis on status quo in, in, in their uh, areas just because they live there. They know people, people know them. So it kind of acts as kind of constraint on what they can do. Uh, but there are these kind of also mobile forces who are much more professional and they can be uh, uh, mobilized to do something much harsher and they have stronger links with external forces and terrorist groups. In terms of political leanings, whether they are pro-peace process or pro-conciliation and, and anti-conciliation, absolutely. It seems like the fighters and commanders uh, have been historically in favor of military option. Uh, um, and there has been a political class, if you will, um, that has favored a, a, a more kind of traditional statementship approach to, to the movement. There, there has been no serious public fragmentation recently. There were many over the time, uh, uh, especially after the Mullah Omar death became public, there were some uh, fractions, but overall it seemed like the group reconciled. And recently there hasn't been major fractions. If there are internal uh, descendants inside the movement, um, they haven't been very, um, they have not become public and they haven't become very consequential for, uh, with regard to the future of the movement. I expect that when we give, when the move, when the military victory, kind of the, the belief in military victory is kind of lost and the Taliban are denied a military victory, um, the political class may be empowered by the commanders um, to actually make compromises and work towards a form of reconciliation. Uh, uh, that would be like the ideal scenario. Um, and in that case, then the hard choices must, have been made, must be made. And therefore, I think those fractions that already exist may, uh, may actually widen and you can, we may see a, a, a fraction, a fractionization inside the movement, but so far, given the Taliban kind of military uh, military momentum uh, has been slowed down, it's some have argued that it has been reversed, but it's still it it is happening. And they are military and not in a very weak position. And given that they have been receiving political legitimacy, they just recently yesterday they were received very warmly by the Chinese uh, uh, foreign minister. Uh, and they have all done the kind of the regional tour. So they have good 
political perspective, um, it seems like the uh, interests of the political class and the military class are aligned and they both believe, I think, uh, that they have a good chance of uh, coming up as the sole winner or the dominant uh, force without the need to make much compromise. So in this kind of environment, it seems like there's not a lot of, um, even if there are differences, there's a lot that keep, keep them together and there would not be a, a public fractions at least for a while. But if that changes, there, I think there are kind of fault lines already existing uh, prior to the peace process, even with between the uh, political kind of class, military class, old timers, new timers, ideologically driven uh, Taliban's and more local Taliban's who are basically mobilized based on local grievances and popular Im imagination of Islam, like the things that an ordinary illiterate person would understand of Islam. There are like uh, fault lines. And if the Taliban have to make compromises and agree to transform from a movement into a partner into uh, in governance, and then we would see frac uh, fractionization. Um, and another alternative reality, kind of another possibility would be that the Taliban would win an outright, outright military victory, which I think is not, just not possible. Um, but if that for any reason happens, we may experience a kind of a 1990 kind of a style of Taliban rule where they uh, pretty much grew, ruled by force, brute force, and um, they just implemented the, their ideological vision of which I has described was the totalitarian regime that tries to um, control every aspect of a human life based on classical texts of Islamic Hanafi orthodoxy. Thank you so much for that. Um, one thing um, that struck me uh, about your points to, that you just mentioned, the decentralized nature of the movement, I think, um, raises some interesting questions. Well, um, one thing I, I was curious to know was um, what happens to the districts that come under Taliban control? Do, um, I, I imagine that the decentralized nature of the movement means that governance within each of those districts would uh, vary quite significantly. And, and the other thing I sort of wanted to understand was, does the Taliban rely on existing state institutions or are they seeking to rebuild from the ground up in these areas that they've overtaken? That's a very, I mean, that's a, I think that's a very accurate observation. And that's what, how you can make sense of different reports coming out from areas where they control. There are areas they, that they have committed serious crimes. Um, they imposed basically very harsh rules. They uh, prosecuted minorities. They blew up uh, government buildings. They, uh, uh, there were reports of serious mistreatment of women and minorities. Uh, but there are other, also areas where the reports are kind of emphasize much more harmonious relationship with the local population and much less violence. It kind of has to do with the fact that the Taliban do not have, not one thing, they are um, kind of working as a network. So they are extremely localized in certain places. The actual takeover of territories, often territories where they do not have strong local support happens uh, by mobilizing forces from other places. So there is some kind of semi-professional forces uh, that come in and take the lead and then the local Taliban help them overrun, a, for example, a major town, which is kind of puts up a resistance. There are many areas where just there's not as much resistance just because of the fact that the Taliban have for so long circulated the, the district center and it's just the district center that was remaining anyway. 
and um, the government forces often do not are not well supplied and not well trained uh, the government forces that actually kind of safeguard that district and there's not a lot of fighting happening but in areas where there's actual fighting um, that kind of semi-professional forces that are often ideologically driven they have good support uh, uh, and they are often advised by by foreigners and uh, and then they, they take over the district, but they leave the issue of governance and control then to local Taliban most often. And um, because the forces, lead forces uh, of Taliban will be needed to uh, fight another point. They're not as mobile, but because of, there's no uh, air, air, kind of they don't have access to air force, but it's still, they have to be moved as they're kind of challenging the government on many fronts. But the, the local Taliban take over and those local Taliban have different characters. Some of them are very harsh, and some of them are very punitive. Some of them actually have been fighting for uh, kind of uh, reasons that have to do with revenge, um, feuds, and such. Some of them are exploitative. I'm just they are driven by the desire to loot and, and just uh, control revenue sources. So you see varied practices. In terms of co-optation of existing government institutions, we haven't. Um, there are places where the Taliban have, uh, as I said, this varies, but there are places where they have tried to not uh, disrupt the flow of commerce and such because, and just they opt to tax them. So they understand that if you have disruption, the whole uh, networks may collapse, like the revenue networks may collapse and they would not get anything. Uh, for example, in Herat, where I'm from, the province I'm from, they control two major uh, uh, border crossings. And they have, for the most part, tried to not disrupt the, 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 the flow of goods into the country, and they opted just to tax them. And as a result, for example, they did not close down the custom. They did not, um, they announced that they would not harm the custom authority uh, people as a way of making sure that the customs actually operate. But they, they, they did take over the local bank at the border crossing as a way of kind of keeping the money for themselves. And they have tried to extract revenue in those ways. But there are other points like when Espin Boldak, uh, which is the border with Pakistan, which was ran over with much more force and, and violence. And there are reports of, of destruction of public property and, 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 and uh, destruction of, of, of uh, government institutions and a purge basically of anyone who's sympathetic to the government. There were reports of coming out of hundreds of people being sort of kind of gathered in a Spilboldek area. They were removed and many of them were executed. So you kind of see a divergent kind of view. And I think it, explain, it is explained by the fact that the, the Taliban are not just one movement. They are just a network of different people who are often fighting for different reasons, who are held together uh, by the, the kind of the narrative of Islamist move, um, kind of Islamist policy, uh, the, the narrative of Emirat and establishment of Sharia, um, and this idea of owing a religious duty to the ruler, uh, as well as obviously the other forms of control that exist, uh, sending the ideologically driven fighters to discipline, for example, uh, a, a local uh, uh, commander who's not compliant or controlling resources. And that kind of resources point is very important as well because there are certain areas of the country where local Taliban are self-sufficient. They raise taxes, they, they, and most of the tax actually, opium plays a major part like tra drug trade, but also they tax everything like the government would do and flow of legitimate goods and smuggling of goods is, is a big, big part of it also, but they tax uh, everything they could tax. Uh, and some of those make the local forces kind of self-sufficient and give them much more autonomy from the central command of Taliban. But there are other areas where the, they are, the Taliban are much, the local Taliban are much more dependent on uh, external resources that the central kind of um, uh, command of Taliban controls. 
And there's also the issue of how to channel the revenue up to the uh, central command. Um, they have set up, tried to set up commissions and try to come up, find out with ways to actually do that. And they've been quite successful. They've had sizable revenues even before the uh, recent gains and they've been, been able to manage them. I remember uh, reading about the frustrations and stalemates of the diplomatic negotiations between Kabul and the Taliban. And what we're seeing right now is pressure from China, uh, the US, uh, parties of regional powers all around pushing for the government, um, pushing for Kabul to, to, to speak with the Taliban about uh, peace, about a political solution. Uh, but if the if the Taliban have revealed so little about the Emirate, um, about their political ideas, about their constitutional thinking, what might be um, possible points of negotiation with the government in a post-US withdrawal Afghanistan? You, I mean, you, I think you had a very correct observation that the Taliban, as I said, they are constellation of many groups that have they're fighting for many different reasons. And um, some of them are ideologically motivated. Some of them are not, some of them are not. Um, and they may want different, they may have different kind of end goals in mind for their fighting. And any, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Uh, if you think about it in those terms that the Taliban would shy away from having clear stance on any issues, right? Other than just saying, we want an Islamic state, but they don't define what it means because defining that would mean they would have to either um, alienate the international community, a large portion of a Afghan population, or they may alienate some of their fighters who've been fighting for a very different version of Islam, uh, kind of Islam, uh, Islamic system they had in mind. So it just makes sense for them to remain as vague as possible to so everyone can see what they want to see in the movement to, as, a, as a way of keeping uh, maximum support for the movement. Also with the issues of, if you kind of step out of this, Islamic system and think about the actual political system and um, uh, the political kind of distribution of power. Again, Taliban would like to uh, remain as vague as possible and just go with specific demands. That's what they've done. They don't talk about the end kind of game or what is gonna be the, the end system. They talk about a specific demand. They say, okay, we want release of uh, uh, our fighters. We want, for example, uh, removal of foreign forces. We want President Qani to be removed. So they have a specific demands that they put forward, but if you ask them positively, okay, put forward a plan of what you would like a future Afghan state to look like, what are, you, what, is, what are your clear positions on issues of women rights, minority rights and such, they don't go beyond vague statements. And that's been a successful negotiation strategy for them that has allowed them to extract as many concessions as possible um, uh, in the negotiation process and don't and give nothing much in return other than just the vague promise that they would just negotiate. And all the concessions that have been made to the Taliban so far has been just in exchange for them negotiating, not um, in kind of, in terms of uh, bargaining over the future state or future political system. And the Taliban has received a lot, this is a strategy that's been working for them quite well and they, they're not gonna give it up unless they are forced to. And the international community does not, is not putting enough pressure on them on that front. Um, but as you point out, often the pressure is on the Afghan government to give in to those specific demands as a way to keep the negotiations alive. 
So you have a situation where Taliban are having making a specific demand, and international community, uh, in exchange for actually continuing to negotiate, and international community is pressuring the Afghan government um, and legitimizing those demands by pressuring the Afghan government to give in those demands for the negotiation to continue without any clear kind of uh, idea of what where these negotiations going to lead. And the Taliban have been extremely sensitive not to clear clarify where the, those negotiations are going to need. You know, have, they have not put forward any plan for peace. They haven't put forward any detailed plan for the future political system in Afghanistan. They often say different things to different people. Uh, so if you listen to their kind of uh, office in Doha that talks to the international community, they make promises, they make very broad statements. But when you contrast that with the reports coming out of areas they control, or um, sometimes this, um, this statements, their commanders who are not authorized to speak on the behalf of the group, but they often do when they're contacted by the, by the media, you get a very different kind of, um, kind of uh, uh, vision. So you, it tells you that some of those statements made by the commanders are actually addressed. They, they may reflect the views of the uh, commanders, uh, which may not be aligned with the uh, Doha office, but also it may reflect, they, they may just be talking to their, to their fighters who are fighting for a different kind of vision of the future than the vision that the Doha uh, Taliban are selling to the international community. Um, most likely to get those concessions and strengthen the position of the group. Um, and I think that the ideal scenario for Taliban would be to become the sole power holder in a system. So they are kind of pretty much engaging in a war of attrition with the government forces, like military forces, but they're also engaging in a, a political war of attrition with the government. They're trying to extract as much as they can with the, from the Afghan government uh, without giving much in return, except this vague idea of negotiation, which keeps their Doha office open and allows them for tra to travel to the region and internationally and just be received and perceived as a possible legitimate state um, and put maximum political pressure on, in the hopes that the political system in Kabul would collapse uh, in, and those, and that would create a situation where the Taliban uh, would be able to become the sole power winner. Because I think they understand, and I think anyone with military expertise would agree that the Taliban do not have a way to absolute military victory as long as the Afghan forces, as, as, as long as the, the, uh, kind of the political system in Kabul does not collapse. So there is a legitimate government uh, that, um, controls the military forces of Afghanistan army and there is the army receives funding, which the United States and others seem to be willing to provide and the Air Force remains uh, uh, functional. I think there is no military path, but Taliban believe that the war of military attrition, which weakens the army and keeps it engaged and just kind of uh, extract exact a very high cost from, uh, from the forces, as well as a kind of war of political attrition, which is putting maximum pressure on the political system may lead to a situation where the politics may collapse, the state may collapse, people may shift kind of alliances, infighting uh, in the Kabul may get worse and worse, and it will lead to a situation where the political leadership of the Afghan forces may actually fail, and as a result, it would lead to basically a disintegration of the Afghan army, which would just clear a path for a Taliban takeover. Dr. Harun, you've given us much to think about. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to South Asia Chat. If you wish to learn more about our work, please visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg.